You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, good morning. We doing good this morning? Yeah? Hey, it's an excited group, I can tell. Every week, that's right. (laughs) Well, it's that Sunday in the year. It's the Sunday right in between Christmas and New Year's, and that means for Stonegate that we bring out the youth guy to speak for the third straight year. The low attendance wins. Oh, you know it. I'm excited. That's right. Um, if you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Um, some passages, when you read them, you can tell instantly that there's going to be some pretty strong application points for people. If you were to read a passage like, I don't know, on marriage or something like that, speech or words or something, there's clearly going to be some direct application points for people. Other passages are much more about God and his character. Today, we are in one of those passages where we're going to see explicitly the glory of Jesus Christ. We're going to see a passage where Mark's goal is for everybody reading and everybody present at this event on this mountain, this transfiguration, to look at Jesus Christ and think, that man is glorious. That's the kind of passage that we're in this morning. It is explicitly clear that Jesus Christ is glorious. And the burden the whole morning is about the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about a lot. The setting of Mark 9, Jesus just got done in Mark chapter 8, introducing some very difficult concepts with regards to what it means to follow him. He used words like denying the self, bearing the cross, not gaining the world, losing yourself. Those are very difficult concepts for the disciples. And so in response, Jesus feeling like that he knows that at some point his disciples are going to be tempted to get distracted. They're going to be tempted to not endure the difficulty of the Christian life. They're going to be tempted to not bear the cross and follow Jesus, and they're going to be tempted to not deny the self and take up the cross. And so in response to that, we get this picture of the transfiguration where they see very clearly, three of them, the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's like Jesus is saying, if you want to be compelled to follow me in a life of obedient surrender, what it means is you have to see Jesus as glorious. In other words, if you don't see Jesus glorious as glorious king, you will not be compelled to follow him very faithfully. And so in this passage, we get a very unique picture, a snapshot into who this man Jesus actually is. And it's overwhelming. And so before we get to Mark 9, I want to read Exodus 24, which is kind of the backdrop of Mark 9. So let me just read a couple of verses in Exodus 24. Verse 1, it says, Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, 
and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. The people shall not come up with him. Note, we've got Moses. We've got three guys joining him on a mountain. Just mental note that for a second. Verse 9, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God and ate and drank. So we get this picture of God's glory. We get a picture of God's glory in a bright and shining sapphire stone on a mountain, beholding the glory of God, a crowd, Moses, three people. And then down in verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. We have a cloud now covering the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, listen to this, was like a devouring fire. So the glory of the Lord was like. On the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. So we got a cloud We have a six-day reference. We have three guys, Moses. We have the glory of the Lord burning as a devouring fire. God wants to make his glory known so people see on this mountain all of this fire. That's the backdrop for Mark chapter 9. So with that being said, Mark 9 verse 1. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2. And after six days, note the word six days. It's one of the only times in the Bible where the six day is used as a chronological marker. It's like Mark is saying, what we just heard is about to happen. The kingdom of God is is going to come with power and there's going to be people here who aren't going to taste death and they're going to see it. And in six days, the transfiguration. So what we see is the kingdom of God coming with power and Jesus' glory, the person Jesus, are the same thing. The person Jesus and the kingdom of God coming with power, it's the same thing. It's not a political kingdom of dominion, an earthly kingdom. It is the person coming down and making himself glorious. That is the kingdom of God coming with power. And then we also see in verse 2, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain. And later we're going to see that a cloud comes as well. So we got all of these sort of pictures that we see from Exodus 24 in Mark chapter 9. The point being, we're going to see the glory of God in Mark chapter 9, but it ain't going to be a fire. And it ain't going to be a stone. It's going to be the Son of God. We're not going to see the glory of God coming from stones beneath our feet. We're not going to see the glory of God in a fire. We're not going to see the glory of God in any other means but via his son, Jesus Christ. It's just a snapshot into how he actually is. See, in the earthly 33-year Jesus, he's a human. 
but from eternity past and now where he is today and where he will ever be forevermore is a glorious king. So we can't overemphasize the earthly ministry 33 years of Jesus, although it's certainly important, and fail to realize that that's just 33 years. He is eternally a glorious king. In this passage, we get just a glimpse into the inner nature of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at four things. The first being the glory of Christ. The most important, we're going to look at the glory of Christ. We see the glory of Christ in this passage in all kinds of details. I mean, we see the glory of Jesus, all kinds of details. We're going to look at three specifically, starting with the change, the transfiguration. Let's look here. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. It's the Greek word metamorpho. It means metamorphosis. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. He was changed. He was, something happened to Jesus. He was transformed. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So we get Jesus being transfigured. It's like just for a moment, the disciples see Jesus Christ as he actually is. It's like Jesus's inward nature for just a moment in time becomes outward and is brought out of him. And the disciples are sitting there watching this. And it's not like Jesus puts on a mask to show himself. It's more like the idea of him taking off the veil for just a second. It's like him revealing himself actually how he is. And so the disciples look at Jesus and they see a radiant, pure, intense, supernatural light for which we do not have a color to even correctly ascribe to it. There's a bright light shining with Jesus and the disciples are sitting there seeing all of this, not a mask coming over Jesus, but a veil being removed temporarily so that Jesus says to the disciples, this is how glorious I am. There's another passage in the Bible where we get something similar, Exodus chapter 34. If you've got a Bible, you can head that way with me. I'm going to read it for us. This is another instance where we see something similar happening, but also something very different when compared to Mark chapter 9. So let me just read this. This is Moses going into the tent of God to meet with God, receive instruction from God, behold the glory of God. And now we get Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So Moses goes into this tent of meeting to meet with God, and as he's talking with God and receiving instruction from God, the glory of God starts to affect the skin of Moses so that he begins to shine and reflect the glory of God, and he doesn't even realize it. And he comes out of the tent, and it's so bright and overwhelming that it scares the people of Israel. This is not like, hey, it's kind of bright. Where are my sunglasses? That's not the kind of bright we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of bright that strikes fear into people. So then, next verse 31, But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. 
And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And then down in 35, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. So there's a similarity between Moses and Jesus. The similarity is there's a really bright light involved. A glorious, radiant, intense, supernatural light. But here's the difference. Moses' glory that was shining from his face was a reflected glory, not belonging to himself. Jesus' glory in the Transfiguration Mountain is his own actual glory. It is not the glory for which he receives from somebody else and reflects. It is the glory that when you see the inside of Jesus, it just comes out of him. He doesn't receive the glory from a third party. Jesus is the glory of God. That's the difference. We get another great verse in Hebrews 1. Let me read this for you. This is, this is, a, this is an unbelievable verse. This is something to get excited about. Hebrews chapter 1 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name as he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you do not understand and see the glory of God, if that's not a growing thing in your life, your capacity to follow him goes down. And the more we understand the radiance of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, our capacity to follow him goes higher. And I love this Hebrews verse because he is contrasted with the angels. And I don't know if you realize this, but in the Bible, every time an angel is seen, every time a human comes into into an encounter with an angel, the human is terrified. They see angels and it's like, oh my gosh, this is a glorious beast, an angelic beast, and the humans are terrified. It happens all over the place. It happens in Isaiah, it happens with Mary, and it happens with John, and it happens with Joshua. They run into these angels and they're just terrified. Even the most angelic creatures, angelic angels, when they come into the presence of a glorious King Jesus, bow their knee in submission to him who has a name that is far more superior to even that of the angels, namely Jesus Christ. I turned 27 on Thanksgiving Day this past year, and around that time, I, I went out to Arkansas to visit my grandmother because she was re- she's recovering from a brain aneurysm right now. And so I went to visit her, see how she, she was doing. So I went with my parents. And uh, I had, I've made this trip to Arkansas numerous times growing up as a kid because uh, my extended family's from Arkansas. And so we've made this trip all the time. And I distinctly remember as a kid, my dad playing News Talk 820, Rush Limbaugh, and me hating it as a kid. And I remember very distinctly 
wishing, can we just play music? Can we just have music? And now at this trip in November, I was sitting in the front seat with a burning hot cup of black coffee, totally engaged to News Talk 820. (laughs) I mean, like, I've turned over a new leaf in my life right now. And so I just am totally engaged. I'm not saying I agree with everything or not agree. It's just, they just say whatever they want to say, and I can appreciate that. And so uh, it's really entertaining. And so I'm locked into News Talk 820, and it just kind of dawned on me, I'm in a new era in life. I'm no longer the cool young teenager that knows what's going on. So because my job is student ministry, I like to keep in touch with what the cool kids are listening to and watching. And so occasionally I turn it on to 1061 or 1029 or something like that just to see what's playing. And I did that a while back and this song was on the radio. I wrote it down. I know I'm going to forget it. So the song Demons by Imagine Dragon. That's where we are in our world right now. We're listening to songs called Demons by Imagine Dragon. That's on Kiss FM. I'm going to read you the lyrics here. Now, I told the first crew, I have the melody in my head. I'm tempted to just sing it, but I'm going to go ahead and flee that temptation for everybody. Here's what it said. When the days are cold and the cards all fold and the saints we see are all made of gold, When your dreams all fail and the ones we hail are the worst of all and the bloods run stale, I want to hide the truth. I want to shelter you. But with the beast inside, there's nowhere we can hide. No matter what we breed, we're still all made of greed. This is my kingdom come. This is my kingdom come. When you feel my heat or my anger, look into my eyes It's where my demons hide. It's where my demons hide. Don't get too close. It's dark inside. It's where my demons hide. It's where my demons hide. He's picking up on a very interesting reality about all human beings, namely that if you get to know human beings to a certain degree, you will discover that there are demons inside of people, literally sometimes, but figuratively, evil is in all of us. It's in all of us. You get to know me, to a certain degree, you'll realize evil is inside of me. If I get to know you, we realize, to a certain degree, there's sin and evil and darkness inside of you. When the three closest companions of Jesus Christ come up onto the mountain and Jesus' insides are brought to light, you think about that. If your insides were brought to light, what the darkness we would see When Jesus' insides are brought to light, there is absolutely no darkness, demon, sin inside of this man. None. There is complete and total perfection. There is a light shining so bright that we simply do not have a category to understand it. There's a color to it that's supernatural, that no man can even bleach. It's whiter than white. It's indescribable. It's glorious. It's majestic. It's radiant. It is Jesus Christ. There's no evil inside this man. The more you understand the glory of Christ, the greater capacity you have to follow Jesus Christ. That's the point of this passage. The point of the passage is that the disciples would see Jesus, just get a glimpse into the true nature of the Christ, and then be compelled to follow him regardless of the road ahead. And so we've got to see Jesus as both 
earthly human and also glorious king. He's both human form, earthly, 33 years, and also glorious king. So the first thing we see is the glory of Jesus Christ. The second thing we see is the disciples' response. Let's look at this right here. Verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You got to love Peter, don't you? I mean, there's a type of person, when you get nervous, they just start to shut down. They get shy and introverted. I'm nervous. I'm not going to say anything. Then there's the type of person who gets really nervous and he just starts talking. You know these people and you're like, please stop talking. Well, Peter is on this team. He's the type of person, I'm nervous. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I know. I'll just start talking. We'll just see what happens. And I was, you know, as I was studying, this has absolutely nothing to do with it, but I was reminded of a time, I was a sophomore in college, and Dr. John MacArthur came in to do a big teaching. It was right when his Tale of Two Sons book came out at a big church in uh, 360 Cross Point, I think, or Cross Ridge or something. And I had backstage passes. I knew a friend who got me backstage passages. So we had dinner with Dr. MacArthur, but before we got there, me and a buddy of mine from college were sent out into the parking lot to welcome in Dr. MacArthur and to show him where dinner was. And I remember him coming in and we were walking a pretty long distance from the parking lot to dinner and we weren't saying anything. Now I feel like in that moment, Dr. MacArthur has, he should be initiating the conversation. That's like, hey, tell me about your life. Hey, tell me about, I'm gonna initiate, he didn't do that. So I figured I'll initiate the conversation. (laughs) So the first thing that came out of my mouth was, he's from California, so I asked him, Dr. MacArthur, did you, did you drive from California or did you fly from California? He looked at, son, I'm in my 60s. Do you think I would drive from California? My friend from DBU was like, what? <laughs> so I was like, no, I think you would have flown. I just don't know what to say. So I just started talking. I don't, so now, you know, Dr. MacArthur and I, we're not friends right now. We're struggling in our relationship, you know, trying to repair the damage a little bit. And Peter's like this. He just starts talking. But we actually learn two things from Peter. We learn something that's not very good, and we learn something that is really, really good. And the first thing we learn from Peter, the thing that is not really good, is that this whole event— This mountaintop experience, this geographic location that they're at, this person, Jesus Christ, being transfigured, the point of this experience is not the experience. It's not the place. It's not the location. It's not the geography. The point is the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's like, we need to stay here and continue to create and recreate this experience with Jesus. And he missed subtly, this happens, subtly you begin to exalt an experience above the person, Jesus Christ. This happens all the time in churches, all over the place. Like I'll just say it like this, I hope that Stonegate has great community for you. I hope that we can be a place where you can foster great relationships 
and develop good relationships. I hope that the worship at Stonegate, the music they do so great, is a great thing for you. I hope it is good for you. And I hope that the preaching is great and good. And I hope that the ministries are good and the home groups are good. All of those things are good only to the degree that they point to the person, Jesus Christ. And what happens is we start to exalt experience. We start to romanticize and even idolatrize our past ministry experiences and our mountaintop experiences and our programs and our camps. And we forget that all of those things point to the person, Jesus Christ. Like Peter, it's not about being on this geographic mountain. It's about the person, Jesus. So the implication is we get People who go from church to church, once the ministry isn't like they wanted, and once the, that's not King Jesus gripping your heart, that's something else gripping your heart. It's all about Jesus. Community is good to the degree that it pushes us to Jesus Christ. Worship is good to the degree that it pushes us to Jesus Christ. Preaching is good. The Bible is good to the degree that it points us and shows us who the person of Jesus Christ is. And the good thing we learn is that they demonstrate an appropriate response to the glory of Jesus. They are terrified. They have a holy terror. It's terror in the best way possible. They see Jesus Christ. This is a, pro- this, there's a watered-downness to Jesus' watered-down, and maybe we exalt the fact that Jesus is comforting and that he suffers with us and that he's here with us, but we need to remember as well that he is glorious king. And that seeing the glorious king for the disciples produced a holy terror in their life. A good, authentic fear of God. You know what the word glory in Hebrew is kavod. It's used 200 plus times. And it means literally heavy in weight. God is not like a helium balloon that just kind of travels and he's fun to look at and he might land on us and he might go other places and he might just kind of, you know, he's a helium balloon. He has a weight to him. That means when he comes down, he impacts people. He transforms people. He calls people. And subsequently that for the disciples creates worship. It causes them to bow their knee to Jesus. It compels them to a life spent following Jesus. That's what the glory of Christ is to the disciples. What a great lesson that is for us. You know, there's two great enemies to worshiping Jesus, I think. And I think that's obsession with self and distraction with things. Did you know that the, this is going to blow your mind. If you're 40 and up, you're not going to get this. The word of the year by the Oxford Dictionary is the word selfie. That's the word of the year. It's actually in the Oxford Dictionary, selfie. Let me explain for those of you who are 40 and up. A selfie is when you take a picture of yourself and you post it on some kind of social media platform. It's just an illustration of how self-obsessed we are. And that can create and limit a downgrading of worship and glory to Christ. And distraction with things. I'm reading a great book right now. It's for student ministers, and he made this point 
If I, as a student minister, get more excited about the next sporting event, about the next gadget, about the next band, about the next concert, and what's in my voice, that excitement, is greater than what is in my voice when I talk about Jesus Christ, what kind of message am I sending? What kind of message are we sending? We need to get excited about the glory of Christ. It's a glory that goes beyond all comparison. I remember I went to a basketball, a high school basketball game last spring. It was a state championship basketball game up in Mansfield. And I, at halftime, I went around and I wanted to get a hot dog from the concession stand. And as I'm in line, I realize that behind me is a really, I can see a shadow and he's a tall, I can, out of my peripheral, I'm like, there's a tall guy behind me. And I look up and David Robinson is behind me. The Hall of Famer, the Admiral David Robinson's behind me. So I'm like, apparently his son was playing in one of the games. And David Robinson's sitting there. Thankfully, I didn't say anything stupid like John MacArthur. So David and I are actually, we're on good terms right now. <laughs> but I felt this awe inside of me, like this sort of wow factor. And the point is not that we can't be awed and wowed by other people and other things. That's not the point. But the point is when you put David Robinson or any person on this mountain, next to the transfigured Jesus Christ, everyone pales in comparison to this man, Jesus Christ. Everyone does. You think about the person in your life, your biggest role model, your biggest hero, the person that if you could just eat one lunch with, you could eat lunch with them, you put that person next to Jesus Christ, there's no comparison. In fact, later in Philippians, Paul says that at some point, Jesus will reveal this glory, and everyone's response will be, instantly a bowing of the knee to Jesus Christ. He is glorious. He's so glorious that we can't even describe it. That's the problem with this sermon. I can't even describe it. That's an impossible job. Just want you to feel that with me for a second. This is what John Owen said about the glory of Christ. It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold the glory the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest, peace, and satisfaction, we must seek, seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and to die. On, the, on Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to this world. My friends, the glory of Christ creates worship inside of us. It causes us to bow our knee. It compels us to follow Jesus. If you don't have a glorified Christ in your mind, your, your ability to worship Christ is going to be limited. Your capacity to follow Christ will be stunted, and we, at the end of the day, will not experience the joy of actually glorying in Christ, worshiping Christ, what you're designed for. And thirdly and quickly, we see the comfort from the Father. I'm going to do this one quickly. Look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. It's like Jesus is about to come down off the mountain and endure one of the most difficult roads, that, the most difficult road that any human being has ever endured. You know, I just wonder what Jesus is feeling. He's probably feeling, we know later that he's 
overcome with anxiety when he thinks about the crucifixion. We see a Jesus who's probably fully human and fully anxious about the cross. And the cross is not a distant reality. It's coming. It's close at hand. And this is a moment in time right before Jesus enters into the last leg of his ministry, before he suffers. And God the Father looks at him and says, you are my son. I think what we see here is the father strengthening the son by, get this, reminding Jesus of his sonship status. What a great Christian principle. For you to hear if you're a Christian, regardless of the road that you're in and regardless of the road that's coming for you, to remember that you are a son or daughter before the living God and that can serve to strengthen, comfort, and encourage you in the ministry, on your road, whatever it is that God has for you. The sonship status functions to Jesus as a strengthening and an encouragement that pushes him and compels him to endure this really difficult road ahead of him. So we see the comfort from God the Father. And lastly, we see the suffering of Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. There's a lot going on here. I'm just going to make it as simple as I can. The disciples come up and say, why doesn't Elijah come first before the Son of Man comes? It's a great question because in Malachi, the very last couple of verses in the Old Testament, Malachi says, Elijah will come first before the day and awesome, the awesome day of the Lord. That's what it says in prophecy in Malachi that they're referencing. And the scribes translated this literally. They thought that Elijah was actually going to physically reincarnate before Jesus comes. And that's a wrong interpretation. Elijah did come, not the physical presence of Elijah, but the spirit of Elijah in the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew 17 makes this very clear in the transfiguration account because it actually says, and then the disciples realized he was talking about John the Baptist. You can reference that on your own, but that's what's going on here. That's actually all beside the point because Jesus uses this as an outlet, a launching point to talk about his suffering. Just like John the Baptist, the spirit of Elijah suffered, so the Son of Man is about to suffer. Let me tell you something. We have both in this passage, in the gospel, both a glorious king and a suffering servant. Both. Let me tell you why that's important. There is no other religious, religion system in the world that's ever existed that has at its center both a glorious king who leverages his glory and power to become a man and suffer, to go to a cross and die, to receive the wrath of God as a payment and penalty for your sin and for my sin so that we could have an avenue to be right with God, to have a relationship with God, to come to know God. 
There is nothing that compares to this at its center, Jesus Christ, glorious king at the front part of the passage, and also suffering servant at the end of the passage. We have both, and we have to have both. If we only have a glorious king, but not a suffering servant, we have a king who's far off, who's impersonal, who doesn't know us, who doesn't empathize with us in our suffering, who doesn't forgive us of sin. He's just out there somewhere. But if we have a glorious king and a suffering servant, we get a king who's on a throne, who's powerful, who's mighty, who's sovereign, and a suffering servant so that we can have forgiveness of sin, and we can have a God who knows exactly what it's like to be human. That's why we need both glorious king and suffering servant. If you're in here, and you're considering the Christian faith, you're like, ah, I don't know about this. I mean, this is one of the strongest arguments for Christ. He's both glorious king and suffering servant. And I don't know how you look at that personally and go, how do you not say yes to that? How do you not say that is what I'm into? Glorious king, suffering servant. And so all that to say, this is a passage explicitly about the person Jesus Christ. Now I want to draw out four implications. We've referenced them. It causes us to bow our knee to Jesus Christ. If you don't see the glory of Jesus Christ, submission to Jesus Christ is going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. It creates in us genuine worship for Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to simply try and create belief inside of you. He came to try and give you a glimpse of him that would in turn produce worship. Every belief, demons believe. In Mark 5, we learn this. Rod preached on it. Even the demons say, you're the son of the most high. We're talking about worship, though. We're talking about, do you worship Jesus? Does Does this glory of Christ produce deep inside of you an awe over Christ? And it compels us to obey and follow Christ. That is one of the central points that if you see a little Jesus, you'll have a lack of ability to follow Jesus. Because at the end of the day, no one wants to follow somebody who's not that glorious. But when we see Jesus for as he actually is, we're compelled to follow. We're create worship comes out of us. Glory to Christ comes out of us and a compelling to follow Christ. And fourth, strengthens us for the road ahead. This is the point of the passage that Jesus comes and says to the disciples, the road's going to be hard. Discipleship's going to be hard. It's going to be a cross-bearing, self-denial, not gaining the world, losing yourself. That's hard. Here's what's going to compel you, strengthen you. Look how glorious I am. It's hidden right now. It's, it's kept secret, right? But one day, man, this glory is going to be out in the open and everyone's going to sit there and go, whoa. And it's going to be a sort of awe and worship that we simply will not have words to describe. So that's the problem with this passage. You just can't describe how glorious, if you're so excited about other people and other things and you're not excited about Christ, just think about this passage. Just consider it. 
Just think about the fact that all of your little idols, and we have shows called American Idol, and we have little bitty idols all over the place that we aspire to be like, and we worship, and we give worship towards, and awe towards. Just consider the fact that all one day, all of them will stand next to Jesus Christ, and they will pale in comparison. To what are you giving your worship, or to whom are you giving your worship? This is a glory of Christ passage where Jesus says, this is who I am in all of my glory. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.